Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Deuteronomy, a couple of passages from Deuteronomy. We start in chapter 13, and then a few verses from chapter 17, and both of these passages serve in the background of our text in 2 Chronicles 23. Here in Deuteronomy 13, the Lord gives instructions when it is found among His people that there is worship of false gods. What are we to do with worshipers of false gods? 13 verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. We turn now to chapter 17 of the same book, where the Lord gives instructions toward the end of the chapter about the future king that the Lord will eventually appoint and install. I want to start at verse 18 and read just the last three verses. And when he, that's the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles 23, continuing our series of sermons in the book of Chronicles on the various kings. We saw last time in 22, chapter 22, that the queen mother, Athaliah, seeing that her son Ahaziah was dead, had risen up and destroyed, had put to death all the house of David, including all of her grandchildren, as far as she could, and she had believed she got them all, but that the Lord, through Jehoshabeath, had stolen away and hidden one of the sons of Ahaziah, and he was being hidden in the temple. So we pick up the story at 23 verse 1. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jeroham, Ishmael the son of Jehohanan, Azariah the son of Obed, Maaseiah the son of Adeah, and Elishaphat the son of Zikri. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold the king's son, let him reign, as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. This is the thing you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers, and one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation, and all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out." The Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men, who were to go off duty on the Sabbath, with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains the spears and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he set all the people as guard, for the king, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house. Then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him, and they said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king, standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason, treason! Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army, saying to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her 
and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. Then all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David. He stationed the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. And he took the captains, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the upper gate to the king's house. And they set the king on the royal throne. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. That's as far as our text will go. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are times when people wonder about how fast things are going downhill. I'm thinking of downhill in a society or in a country or nation when corruption sets in, immorality sets in, and with it all sorts of poverty and crime. Ordinary citizens get discouraged and sometimes say that it looks like their country is going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe you've heard that expression. Somebody say that. Maybe you've felt that way yourself sometime. That the downfall and the destruction of a people is happening so fast, it's virtually unstoppable. It's it's like watching a car that careens off the road into a ditch at a high speed, and all you can do is watch that helplessly. There seems to be nothing you can do to stop it. Well, that's the kind of situation of the church. The people of Judah, the covenant people, were in in the time of Queen Athaliah. Nobody knew what Jehoshabeath had done in hiding that baby. That was kept top secret for obvious reasons. So as far as everybody in the kingdom was concerned, the line of David had been cut off entirely. There was no heir left to the throne. There was no son of Azariah. All of his own siblings were dead. There were no nieces and nephews. The lament of Psalm 89 filled the hearts of many of the faithful. Words that we sang a few moments ago, the covenant that God made with David, you have repudiated. That's what it seemed like to the people, that God had basically canceled it. David's crown lies in the dust, defiled and violated. That's how it looked to everybody. As far as the average person was concerned. There was nothing left of David's house, nothing left of God's covenant promises. 
And this didn't just go on for a single month or even one year, but for six long years. That's how it looked. Imagine yourself in that time period. Six long years, nothing. Nothing but a horrible, sinking feeling in your gut that the church, that the covenant people of God, the house of David, and the nation as a whole under Athaliah, that it was all going to hell in a handbasket. What discouragement. What depression, what despair must have filled the hearts of many of God's people. What powerful temptations they must have felt to just abandon ship, to say farewell to Yahweh because everything has broken down. Maybe we should go after some of the other gods, like Athaliah's god Baal, because she seems to have success. Why don't we join her? That's the, the context of chapter 23, and yet the gospel of our text is this. Even when things look their bleakest, even then the Lord creates a way of salvation. And this time, He chooses to work through a humble priest. That'll be our theme this morning. The Lord uses His priest to restore his kingdom. This involves a holy uprising, and it results in a united kingdom. Well, as mentioned, we already know from 20, chapter 22 that Jehoshabeth has been keeping baby Joash hidden in the temple. That's, she is his aunt. But as we enter chapter 23, we don't read of Jehoshabeth anymore. There's a new figure that comes to the surface, and that's her husband, Jehoiada. Verse 1, But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of, of hundreds. This is Jehoiada the priest, we read. For the rest of the chapter, and, and quite a ways into chapter 24, it will be this man repeatedly called Jehoiada the priest, who will lead the action. But we want to ask, who is this man? He does quite a bit for the Lord's service, but who is Jehoiada? Well, apart from what we read in these two chapters and their parallel in Kings, we really don't know much about him. It's clear from our text that He's a priest. He's even in charge of the temple, and in the king's parallel, he's called the high priest, so that much is clear, but really there was not much unusual about that. There always was a high priest. There is something unusual about this Jehoiada, and that is his age. It actually appears in the next chapter, 24, verse 15. We read there that this Jehoiada dies at the age of 130. And he dies toward the latter portion of Joash's 40-year reign. So we can estimate that Jehoiada, let's say he died roughly 10 years before uh, Joash's end of reign, that would make him about 100 years old in our text, chapter 23. 
He's a hundred-year-old priest managing the temple in the days of Athaliah. Not exactly a stark threat, not exactly a clear and present danger to her throne, is he? I mean, we have our beloved heart brothers in their mid-90s, lovely Christian men, but I don't think anybody regards the two heart brothers as a threat to political power, do they? I mean, that's what that's who Jehoiada was. Athaliah herself was a Baal worshiper and likely never set foot in the temple precincts, but even if she had, all she would see is a very ordinary 100-year-old man overseeing the sacrifices and worship of the people. Who is Jehoiada? He's a perfectly ordinary senior citizen. He's an aging high priest who's lived far longer than most priests ever did, but no one would expect any heroic acts from Jehoiada, the priest. But that's often the Lord's way, isn't it? Where we only see weakness, the Lord has His way of providing a hidden strength. And notice that when Jehoiada starts to act, he does not do this in his own strength. Verse 1 tells us that Jehoiada took courage. Well, where did he take courage from? That is told us in the coming verses. Jehoiada acts first to make a covenant with the commanders of hundreds. Then he makes another covenant with all the heads of the father's household. And then he tells them what he's leaning on in verse 4. He says, he introduces the jo Joash, the, the king's son. He says, Behold the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. Jehoiada is leaning on the word of the Lord. That's where he gets his courage from. He remembered the promise to David, 2 Samuel 7, 14. Also repeated in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 17, that David would have a man on the throne from generation to generation. The Lord would make this happen. And even though wicked Athaliah was in charge at the palace and had control over the army, and though there was no other close family relatives of David's line left alive, and though this Joash was only a child now of seven years of age, nevertheless Jehoiada found strength in the promise of the Lord. And in that strength, he took action. In that courage, he took action. Is that where you go, brothers and sisters, for courage? to act to the promises of the Lord. When all the odds seem against you, where do you go for help? We're meant to go back to the promises of the Lord. That's what Jehoiada is telling all the leaders of the church that he's got gathered there in the temple at that moment. They had to trust they had to trust what God had said to David all those years earlier. They had to believe that this, this little boy of seven years old would actually be given the throne of David, that this would work somehow, that he would overcome Athaliah, though it looked impossible. 
There are days like that in, in every believer's life when we go through hard things, really hard things. And it seems impossible that circumstances can change for the better, that there can be improvement, impossible that good can come out of this mess. But then remember, brothers and sisters, what the Lord has promised to you and me. I give you a couple of examples. I will not leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. Be strong and courageous. It's said in Joshua 1. It's repeated in Hebrews 13. I will not leave you, so be strong. I'm with you. Whatever your circumstance, beloved, you are not alone. Not alone. Here's another promise from Psalm 27. David clung to this promise. He said, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord, that's what you've committed to me. I believe what you've promised. I'm hanging on to it. My sisters, my brothers, you too, hang on to it. That promise and all the other promises of the Lord Return to him in prayer about those promises. Lay those promises before them. Claim those promises in trust, in faith, and then take courage that your God is with you to bring that promise to pass. Take courage. On the basis of that promise to David, Jehoiada takes action. What does he do? Well, he organizes an uprising against the queen, Athaliah. We need to understand this very well. He's not leading a revolution. Jehoiada is not leading a rebellion. Remember that it was Athaliah who had led a revolution wickedly against the Lord and the house of David appointed by the Lord killing all the remaining descendants of David's line that she could find. Athaliah was the illegitimate ruler of the land, not Joash there in the temple. He was the rightful king. Notice how the inspired author, when he introduces Athaliah, does not speak of her like he speaks of the rest of the kings of Judah. He doesn't give her any of the usual introductory formulas about the king reigning such and so forth for so long and doing this and doing that, she's only briefly mentioned as an interloper, as an invader, as a usurper. And for that reason, an armed effort by the high priest to rid the kingdom of this wicked queen, that's not an ungodly revolution. That is a holy uprising to restore true godly law and order. It was ordained by the Lord. And that's a principle we need to keep in mind as we think about our responsibilities also in our time then to civil authorities. God calls us to honor civil authorities. God calls us to obey all legitimate civil authorities, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether it's easy or difficult under their rule, okay? You can think of Nehemiah respecting and obeying the pagan king Artaxerxes as cupbearer to the king. So 
even to the pagans we owe respect and submission and honor. But, and here's the point of our passage, not so do we owe that to the usurpers. Not so do we owe that to the revolutionaries. That's why Christians felt free in World War II to join the resistance against Hitler. When he sent his German army into their lands, Hitler was not the legitimate ruler of the Netherlands or of France. He was a wicked invader. And if it were to happen in Canada that terrorists were somehow to take over at Queen's Park or Parliament Hill, we Christians would do right to resist their evil. We don't do that lightly. We don't do that without due care. But the point is there is a time to rise up in holy opposition to wicked usurpers. And Jehoiada is well supported in his strategy. He rallies the Levites, and they come. He reaches out and rallies the royal guard that protects the king's house, and they come on board. And then he goes and he rallies the heads of the clans of Judah so that all the regular citizens out there in the countryside, they also follow Jehoiada. And notice how Jehoiada, the priest, arranges this uprising to take place, to go down on, or in a holy space right there in the temple in God's house. Clearly, this whole endeavor has God's approval and blessing for everything goes without a hitch. The Levites are armed even with David's weapons, which had been stored in the temple. They break out the old supply of spears and shields to guard the king. These Levites, they willingly put their lives on the line to, to guard little King Joash, knowing, not knowing how Athaliah might react. She might send in the National Guard. For all they knew, she, would, she was a murderous queen, remember? But at the end of the day, the Lord so blessed this holy uprising, we read in our text, that only two people die. The wicked usurper herself, Athaliah, and her wicked priest, Matan, the priest of Baal. Just two individuals. That's a remarkable thing when you have an uprising, isn't it? And those two were put to death at the command of God, just as we read it in, one, in Deuteronomy 13. Anybody who went after the false gods and tried to lead others was to be put to death. And then the very last verse of the chapter, the land had quiet after Athaliah was put to death. This is from the Lord. And I wonder if you noticed that all of this goes down on the Sabbath day. The day that is holy to the Lord. It takes place in the holy space, the temple, and in holy time, the Sabbath day. So that means there was a whole pile of activity, there was a whole pile of work going on on the Sabbath day. And yet, 
beloved, we should not look askance at that because physical rest in and of itself, that was never the ultimate goal of the Sabbath. Physical rest, rest from daily labor, that's a sign. That was meant and is meant as a sign of the greater rest from God's enemies given to God's people. So, isn't getting rid of Satan's agent, which is Athaliah, isn't getting rid of Satan's agent from God's palace, isn't that a perfect fit, a perfectly Sabbath thing to do? Let's get the freedom back. Let, let's do this on the Sabbath. As God says in the fourth commandment, we heard it again this morning, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and that the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God wanted His people on the Sabbath to celebrate freedom from slavery. The Sabbath was a token of their freedom, a sign of their freedom in covenant with God. The Lord had once set them free from slavery to Egypt, and He promised to keep them free from slavery. And so, just like the Lord earlier in history ordered Jericho to be destroyed on the seventh day, and just like Jesus would later heal His people and restore His people and cast out demons from His people on the Sabbath day, so here in our text, the Lord uses His priest to restore His kingdom on the Sabbath day. It was a perfectly fine Sabbath thing to do. Can you see in this Jehoiada, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of Christ at work, filling him, doing these things? Just as the Spirit of Christ filled Jehu, we read that last time in the northern tribes of Israel, filled Jehu to cut down Ahab's house, so Jehoiada has the Spirit of Christ in him to finish the task here in the south by taking out Athaliah. At Athaliah's death, the line of Ahab, the wicked line of Ahab, is once and for all eliminated. There's no more heirs. David's line had looked like it was finished, but Ahab's line is finished. And this action of Jehoiada it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry. What was the Lord Jesus doing? He was rising up against the power of Satan's house. He did that by resisting every temptation that Satan put on his path on his way to the cross, where the Lord Jesus then willingly laid down His life to pay for each and every sin of yours and of mine. And isn't that how King Jesus destroyed Satan's grip on us? Why is it that Satan has power over sinners? He has power over sinners because our sin holds us guilty before God and leaves us under God's wrath and turfs us out of God's fellowship into the realm of darkness. That's what the guilt of sin does for every sinner. But 
when our sin is no longer counted against us. When God the judge no longer looks upon us as guilty because of the work of Jesus, when God then chooses to have fellowship with us and have peace with us, what authority does Satan have over us? We're not in his kingdom. We've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. We no longer belong to the devil, but to King Jesus. So Christ, our great high priest, has established the kingdom of God once and for all, and no power or, or in the realms above, in the spiritual realms above, or no, any power here on the earth can stop his kingdom. The, the foundation has been laid. Satan doesn't have a hold on you and me. That's another promise, another fact that we need to hang on to and wrestle with and lay before God when we are confronted by temptation. When we think that Satan has a chokehold on us, Lord, I know that your son paid for my sin so that the devil cannot have a chokehold on me. Release me from his grip. I know that I do not belong to the devil. Let me experience that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, body and soul. Christ is gathering His people. He, he was in the days of Jehoiada. He's still doing it today. And He's building up His united kingdom. That's what comes out throughout the chapter. It's indeed remarkable how smoothly everything goes for Jehoiada, how much cooperation he receives from all parties. In fact, there's no arguing here anywhere. There, there's no hesitation on the part of the troops or the Levites or the leaders of Judah or the people who come to the temple. There's no hint of internal strife. They are, are of one mind. I mean, you can hardly find that, right? If I were to take a survey here in the congregation on almost any subject, would we all be of one mind on those points? Not likely. And here was this uprising, which is a very serious thing and dangerous, but they were all of one mind. And I want, I want you to see how the chronicler shows us the unity that the Lord is instilling. If you'd have your Bible open, just to walk through a few verses here in chapter 23, starting at verse 3, the chronicler says there, he emphasizes how together the people were. Verse 3, and all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. Notice the word all. Now down to verse 8, the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. All Judah. Verse 13, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Go to verse 16, and Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. Verse 20, and all the people of the land brought down the king from the house of the Lord, marching through the upper gate to the king's house, and they set the king on the royal throne. So all the people of the land rejoiced. Everybody's on board. 
Everybody is willing to risk their lives. Everybody wants to see the king on their throne. Everybody wants to serve the king. What can this be, brothers and sisters, but the work of the Spirit of Christ uniting the hearts of God's people? Everybody was on board. And their hearts are, are, are united, not just in a common cause. Let's get rid of Athaliah. There's something deeper to this unity, much deeper. It's, it's in their relationship with the Lord that they are united. Did you notice how many times the word covenant shows up in this, in this chapter? Jehoiada makes three different covenants, in fact. He starts with a, a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, then in verses 2 and 3, he makes a covenant with the, the heads of the father's houses of Judah. And at last, toward the end of the chapter, he makes a covenant with all the people and the king. But these three covenants are really the versions of the same thing. They all have the same basic ring to them because they all relate to the Lord and, and the Lord's choice to have his people ruled by a king. Verse 16 puts it together nicely that they should all be the Lord's people. That's what the covenant was about, that they should all be the Lord's people under that king chosen by the Lord. This wasn't just the reestablishment of the proper civil authority, but it was the reestablishment of the Lord's relationship with his people in which the Lord's king was to play a massive role. And the role of the king is pointed out as well very quietly, but still very clearly in verse 11. When Jehoiada brings out Joash to the public for the first time, we read there, verse 11, and they put the crown on him and gave him the testimony and they proclaimed him king. They gave to the seven-year-old king something called the testimony. What's that? Well, that's just another way of referring to God's covenant law, His Torah. Think of the, the ark that was inside the temple. It's often called the ark of the testimony because inside of the ark were the two stone tablets on which were written by the finger of God the Ten Commandments, which are like a summary of the covenant. The Ark of the Testimony. So the testimony is a shorthanded way of saying that a copy of the covenant law of God was given over to the new king, just as we read about in Deuteronomy 17. Such a copy would certainly include the Ten Commandments, but it may well have included the whole book of Deuteronomy as a, a summary of God's Torah, God's instruction. According to Deuteronomy 17, every king was, in, was actually supposed to handwrite a copy of God's covenant law, his Torah, for himself. Imagine what you have, how that would impact you if you had to handwrite it. Let's say the whole book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes kids have to write dictionary pages at school, not very useful in terms of knowledge. But handwriting the book of Deuteronomy, that would impress upon you every single word, right? And why did the Lord have him do that, the king? So that he would know God's instruction, God's law. That he would have it imprinted on his heart. That he would study it all the days of his life. He had to have a copy in his back pocket, so to speak. 
He had to meditate upon it day and night so that he could lead the people of God in the covenant way. And because seven-year-old Joash was too young to write out that law for himself, <coughs> Jehoiada nevertheless made sure that he had a copy given to him at his coronation because he knew the king was nothing if he did not lead the people in the covenant with their God. That was the king's job. And now look at the first acts in the restored kingdom under Jehoiada's guidance. <clears throat> the first act is that all the people set out as one person to destroy the house of Baal. They tear it down, we read. And they kill his priest as the Torah said should be done. The Lord Yahweh is a jealous God. And if his people are to, to serve him with all their heart and all their soul and all their might, as God demands of them and of us, then they can have no competitor God. All the Baals, all the Asterisks, all the Dagons, they had to be thrown away, and all who worshipped them had to be purged from the land. So this question comes to you and me, brothers and sisters. Do you have, do I have a competitor God in our lives? In Jerusalem of that day, you could go down and worship the God Baal, or you could go worship the God Yahweh. That's still available to us. We can come here Sundays and worship the Lord, and on other days or even between services, go worship some other God. What are we doing? Remember that this six-year reign of Athaliah was an extremely dark time for God's people. Most would have believed that God's promise to David was dead in the water. They didn't see any hope. Many would not know what to think or do. Many would have lost hope. And clearly, some had gone so far as to follow Athaliah in her Baal worship, thinking that perhaps Baal could bring them uh, the good times. Well, what do we do when our situations are bleak? hard do we give up on the one true God do we give up waiting hoping so hard to wait when you're in the midst of the hard thing it's just brutal do we then in those hard days look somewhere else and put our hope in some alternative and look to that alternative for comfort. It's easily done in dark days. The only thing is, brothers and sisters, no matter where we look, there is no other God. Baal didn't exist. He was just a demon in disguise. Satan is no God. He's just a fallen angel trying to deceive us. Our God is the only God that exists. And He has proven Himself to be good and trustworthy and faithful to His promises again and again. Look at the history in Scripture. 
Look at your own earlier history in your own life, how God has been with you since you were a kid up until now. So then, beloved, let you and me go to that closet in our heart and scour that closet for any idols we've got tucked away in there, for any false gods we are leaning on and falling for, putting our hope in, and let's take those idols and throw them away forever. Give to God, your God, all of your heart. Give yourself to Him fully and completely to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and wait upon the Lord. He knows the waiting is hard. The Psalms are so filled with waiting Christians in hardship. He knows how hard it is to wait, but His promise is true. In His time, in His way, you will experience help from the Lord just like Jehoshabeath did, just like Jehoiada did. And after destroying the false god of that day, the Spirit of Christ in Jehoiada went on to reestablish and make firm the true worship of the Lord there at the temple. Verse 18, Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites, whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David. Notice how careful the chronicler is to say that everything Jehoiada did was according to the Torah. The Torah of Moses and the later command that God gave through David, everything he was doing was according to the word of the Lord. He secured temple worship. Why? Why was that such a big deal? Because the covenant between the Lord and His people, it hinged on what took place there at the temple. And what was the main activity at the temple? The burnt offering that's mentioned here. Just like Moses commanded, every day, twice a day, the burnt offering had to be offered. And as David commanded, it had to be done with rejoicing, with, with song. Why the burnt offering? What's the big deal about the burnt offering? Because through that offering, the Lord promised to bring forgiveness for all the sins of the people. The Lord knew and made it so that that Burnt offering was a foreshadowing of the great offering of the Son of God, the Messiah on the cross. So that offering was the security for the forgiveness of sins. And it's only when the sins of God's people are taken away that they can come into His presence and enjoy fellowship with Him with joy and song. You have to protect the burnt offering, says the Spirit of Christ in Jehoiada. And then the Spirit of Christ later, in the person of Christ, did exactly this. Fulfilled the burnt offering when He sacrificed Himself on the cross. When the Lord Jesus died and came back to life, 
He secured forgiveness for you and me once for all. The basis of the covenant relationship we have with God and the peace that flows in that relationship, the basis of the kingdom of God, the cornerstone of the church has been forever laid down in the work and person of Jesus, our great high priest, who is also at the same time Jesus, our great king. Jesus fulfills the office of Jehoiada. He is the greater Jehoiada, but he's also the greater David, rolled into one. Isn't he awesome? You and I, we still sin, even as God's people. But when we repent, when we turn to God with sorrow of heart, He receives us anew, and our sins are washed away because of Christ, in the blood of Christ. Never doubt that. Always hold that front and center. And think about all that this Savior has done for you. That really helps when we're talking about unity. Do you know how much sin God has washed away from your heart? Just think of yourself now for a few minutes. Think of your sins, a whole life of sin behind you. How big is that mountain of wrongs that you've committed? I've committed. How big is that mountain of guilt that, that God has actually bulldozed into the sea because of Jesus? How much grace, how much favor has your covenant God shown to you? And when that is before your eyes, and you feel the comfort of that peace deep in your heart, then unity with one another, it starts to get easier, doesn't it? Has to. How can I be hard-hearted toward my brother? How can I be tight-fisted toward my sister when the Lord God has been so gracious to me? Pray then for Christ to unite our hearts as brothers and sisters in Him and to unite us together as His kingdom citizens. Pray for that and take action, take courage like Jehoiada, take action insofar as you can. Taking courage in the Lord. Amen.